0: And hi, everyone. You're listening to another episode of The Wellness Couch, where... Science meets Ancient Wisdom, 87.6 FM. Tonight, we are going to embrace the science of nutrigenomics, give you some education on putting you in control of your own health. And what if you could enjoy good health day after day, despite your ageing, or have little, if any, reliance on pharmaceuticals to feel actually really well, or feel that you have control over your health-related decisions, and understand and utilise your real power of food in promoting your health. Now, joining us tonight is a well-revered, Biochemist, Educator, Lecturer and Registered Nutritionist. Welcome Dr Christine Halton.
1: Thank you so much Katerina, it's a pleasure to join you on the Wellness Couch.
0: Yeah, you're a wealth of knowledge, so I'm really looking forward to this tonight. Mm -hmm. Such a pleasure having you on our show. Um, Now, what we want to go into at the moment, I guess a lot of uh, the audience um, wants to know what nutrigenomics and functional foods and nutraceuticals actually are from your perspective.
1: Well, let me explain that to you. So um, to do that, let me just tell you that um, I haven't been in clinical practice since 2004 and that's really relevant here because i left practice in May of that year and it was in October, the same year, that the term nutrigenomics was coined. So what that word means is it's two parts, nutra, as in nutritional food and genomics as in genes. So we look at it as food talking to your genes. So, you know, for years we thought about food as being made up of proteins and carbohydrates, fats, vitamins, minerals and so on. But we didn't really understand that there was a whole dimension which was much more than those basic nutrients. And this concept that foods can talk to your genes uh, was a whole new and Exciting endeavour and it was wonderful for me. I'd only been out of practice a few months and along came this wonderful new concept. So it was very, very exciting and continues to be so because it's completely changed the way we look at the role of food in human health.
0: Now, Onyx is such a biomarker discovery, obviously, in nutrition and health. Tell me about your trajectory and how you actually got on this pathway first, because your resume is so interesting.
1: Well, it goes back a long way, long before most of your listeners were probably <laughs> even born. But nevertheless, I started practice in the mid-1970s. Fantastic. And at that, yeah, at that stage, I, I had a degree in biochemistry from the University of Queensland. And a great interest, a great personal interest in nutrition, a lot of which had come from my mother, who had always been very particular about healthy food. And I grew up in um, an orchard community in Queensland where, you know, we would be nothing to take four peaches to school for your lunch, and they never cost any money because we didn't have an orchard, but someone would give them to us. So we've always had this healthy view of having fruits and vegetables in the diet. So uh, at that time that I started practice, there were actually very few nutritional supplements on the market. And what made that really significant is that whatever we did with patients in the clinic, we had to do with food. And that started me on this course of just knowing the real power of food. I think as the years got, have gone on, unfortunately, the supplement companies have driven this idea yeah. that there's nothing much left in our food, therefore, buy my supplements. Yeah. And while was an element of truth in the fact that we are over-farming the soils and so on. It's really not true to say that there's nothing left in our food. And, um, I mean, I, I continue to demonstrate that so As the years went on in my clinical practice years, I um, got swept up with a lot of the supplement stories as well. And it was years later that I began to realize, even though I'd had this um, food-first philosophy always, I'd kind of forgotten that food would do the job. So Mm. having discovered nutrigenomics, ironically enough, a few months after I left clinical practice, I've pretty much done a complete 360 degrees on the way I look at supplementation in health because I'm I'm really still committed to this concept or recommitted to the concept that you can do extraordinary things with food when you understand what food can really do. And this idea of food talking to your genes opens up a whole new world because some of the genes which we can activate with foods are essential for the way in which human cells protect themselves against disease, uh, how they deal with all the day-to-day activities that human cells need to do, how they create their own antioxidant enzymes, their own detoxification enzymes, and so on and so forth. So um, that's... Just brought me round again to this concept of the power of food, and honestly, it's in a country like Australia and many others, we have access to amazing food. We do now. Ideally, you would buy organic if you can, but if you can't, just eat lots of plant food. I'm, I'm not vegetarian. I'm not vegan. I don't particularly promote that concept. But I do promote the need for us to eat more plant food. And interestingly enough, the Mediterranean diet, Mm -hmm. the traditional Mediterranean diet, has about four to five times more fruits and vegetables in than we do in our Australian diet. And that was a very powerful lesson to me when I learnt that. Because it's not that we can't do a lot of health and, and healing work with food. It's just that most of the time, we don't need enough of the right things. So the convenience of junk food, takeaway, packaged, bottle, canned food, and all the rest of it, unfortunately, has steered a lot of people away from buying the basic ingredients. You don't have to, to get into complicated recipes no. to do that. And um, I just enjoy watching people's health recover really from the from utilizing the power of food and the way i look at it it's the this wonderful food supply that we have is mother nature's toolbox and sometimes i think we try to complicate the way we deal with health and really we just need to give mother nature this big toolbox with all these wonderful natural foods in it and she will figure out how to do the rest yeah. That's a long answer to your short question.
0: No, because um, as a practitioner, you know, therapeutic strategies, um, you know, relate differently to, to individuals. So the application of these emerging fields, though, in nutritional science provides just an opportunity for matching um, nutrients based on genetic makeup of an individual. I, I find it fascinating, you know, how foods and their constituents can affect the, the expression of the gene. Um, but mm-hmm. obviously not the same food will affect the same individual. The,
1: No, so there's a couple of things to say about that. First of all, um, there's a a second branch, like a a sister branch of Mm. nutrigenomics that's called nutrigenetics. And uh, some of your listeners may have already had a nutrigenetic profile done where you send a sample off to get your DNA mapped. And that comes back with a report that tells you of so many hundreds of genes that they may have evaluated in this test, you, you will find that you've got certain variations in those genes. We, we all have variant genes. Nobody has the perfect genome. In you know, Some people will have a, a variant of a gene that makes it only function at about three quarters mm, of its activity yeah. that the normal one would, and some people have a gene that even functions less than that. But the good news there is that we used to say that your genes are not, or we still can say, your genes are not your destiny. So even if you find out from this report that you've got this variant and that variant that are not what we call the normal variant, it doesn't mean you're doomed. Because when you understand what that gene does and what foods you can use specifically, who give that gene a little bit of extra oomph, if you like, yeah. kick it along mm. a little bit. They None of them work at, at their peak all the time. So there's always a little buffer in there. You can nudge it along and you can improve the activity of even these variant genes. So that's the good news for anyone who gets one of these reports back and, you know, sits and cries in the corner and goes, oh, my goodness, look <laughs> at all this stuff that's <laughs> yeah. wrong with me.
0: Yeah
1: and um not forgetting that we inherit
0: traits as well we inherit um specific dietary patterns as well from our families normally
1: what we do yes i mean i i can remember um talking to people in the clinic they'd say oh my gp said that um my heart disease is genetic because dad (laughs) had heart disease and granddad died of a heart attack and When you start asking a few questions, you find that dad and granddad both smoked and ate junk food and so on and so Mm. forth. And so Mm. sometimes it's bad lifestyle habits that are causing the problem, not necessarily your genes. So the good news about having one of those nutrigenetic profiles done, of course, is that you can then say, okay, well, here it is. You'll need to get some professional advice by the way these reports are too complicated to interpret on your own. But you've gone to a clinician, he or she has looked at it and said, okay, all right, so we've got this gene. This may mean that you don't detoxify certain foods as efficiently as you should. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. Uh, Let's include in your diet more of this food and more of that food um, and so that way you start to form a tailored program that's exactly right for you, mm. which is quite different from, you know, what we did in days gone by. <laughs> You'd have this ideal diet, you should have so many thirds of this every day and so many thirds of, of that.
2: Food and groups, And none of yeah. it really yeah. is
1: the average person. No. So that doesn't apply to anybody, but it's nice when you can tailor that and, and often you'll you'll look at your gene pattern, you'll say, oh, now I understand why I'm susceptible to that symptom and my brother and sister aren't or whatever it happens to be. So that's the exciting part about getting a nutrigenetic profile done. But even if you don't, there are ways of optimising your dietary intake in order to be sure that you've got most of your genes working at their peak anyway. And that comes back to this notion of what is it in food, if it's not vitamins and minerals and so on, what is it in food that's talking to your genes? Mm. So it turns out that in plant food in particular, there are about 10,000 plant chemicals, which are known as phytochemicals, yeah, yeah, phyto as in yeah. plant. And we know a lot about some of these plant chemicals, but well, we don't know very much about most mm. of them. I mean, it takes a long time to, to understand 10,000 different food chemicals. But the reason that I'm mentioning how many they are, there are is that the more variety we put into our Mm, diet, mm. the more likely we are to get a whole array of all of these different plant molecules. And even if you only get a little bit of this one and a little bit of that one, they tend to have an additive effect. And again, Mother Nature knows what to do with these things in her toolbox, even if we don't know exactly what the phytochemical out of Let's say a herb like basil does, it doesn't matter. Nature combines all of these, and these plant molecules are actually signaling molecules. So, when we say food talking to your genes, Mm -hmm. we've got these particular molecules that are sending signals to different parts of the cell. Mm -hmm. So, it's extremely complex what goes on in the cell. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating, but I did learn quite a long time ago that <clears throat> when I talk about using Mother Nature's toolbox, I think we need to stop trying to micromanage a lot of what's going on in human cells. And I look at some of the synthetic supplements that are on the yeah, market, yeah, and we try to give them in massive doses, well in excess of anything you mm. could ever get out of mm. a diet. And I think I'm sure Mother Nature doesn't want me jamming all of these molecules into my cells if they don't naturally want to go there in an average amount of food. So when I say I've changed my approach to clinical practice, uh, is I've moved away from a lot of those supplements that, you know, we used to think if a little bit was good, more must be better, Mm. Um, I don't feel like that anymore I, and, and I have the clinical evidence to prove that. So um, we see the most remarkable results by looking at this, new I call it nutrigenomic medicine now, that's what we're really using. We're taking food elements that we know can talk to specific genes
0: yeah, and the interesting um, point is that an individual response to nutrients and non-nutrient molecules can be largely affected by the biological layers, aren't they? Like you're an expert in the gut microbiome and immune system as well that um, can alter the bioavailability of the nutrients and the other substances from from those supplementations as well.
1: Well, the exciting world now is the gut, and I think everybody knows that you know gut health is a thing. And... Um once upon a time, we would just think it, was, it would only be applicable to people who say, I've got some digestive problems, you know, I burp and I belch and I bloat and I feel uncomfortable and, and so on. So what we know now is that the, the tube that goes from mouth all the way through yeah. to out the other mm. end is lined by this single layer of cells, these gut epithelial cells, And these fascinating cells because um, they are talking to the bacteria (laughs) that are in the microbiome anyway. And then on the other side of that same single cell, that epithelial cell is talking to the immune cells directly underneath the gut lining. So we have this fascinating ecosystem which is made up of the tube of the gut which has got the food coming through but also masses and masses of bacteria and other microbial organisms uh, living in there and they work in conjunction with ourselves. So we provide solutions for them to make them healthy and they in turn provide solutions for us. And then out of that we get signaling molecules which are picked up by the gut lining cells and those signals now are conveyed to the underlying immune cells.
0: Yeah, just beautiful.
1: Mm. 80% of the immune system lives in that area directly below the gut. And once I've learned that, the whole world opened up. I mean, everything changes. And I think for decades we thought, you know, the immune system is somehow in your nasal passages, in your respiratory system because we relate the fact we get, a, we get something wrong with our immune system. It's cold or a flu or something along those lines. So we've had this really narrow view and then we've done things like megadose with vitamin C and, and zinc and such like when really that, those molecules, vitamin C in particular, has got nothing to do with that signaling process that goes on. Uh, in the gut ecosystem between the microbiota, the gut epithelium and the immune network underneath. Vitamin C is essential for the health of some of the immune cells. But it's not this magic molecule that we thought it was 50 and 60 years ago. That's all changed. And um, in the GEM protocol, which is this program that um, we teach we teach clinicians how to target the gut epithelium and the microbes and the immune cells there and once we get those back in balance and functioning as they should lots of other things will change within the body and and, and it will change also in some people think they don't actually have any gut symptoms and they may not but they may still have an imbalance in that ecosystem. Yeah, so that's That's the new world that we work on and nutrigenomically active molecules are really key to getting this process started and that's what we do by targeting these epithelial cells lining the gut and when we get the inflammation out of those, get them balanced, the food intolerances go away, so many people feel they react to so many foods. Mostly, Mostly, that can be fixed by restoring this gut ecosystem back yeah.
0: to normal. Yeah, yep. I was. Um, I had a case this week with um, with an athlete where the composition. Yeah. You know, I was telling them the composition of each athlete's microbiome influences their sports performance, and um, both directly by acting on the energy metabolism and indirectly through the modulation of nutrients and the molecules that are available. Um, that ultimately affect their individual epigenome, but um, and such is the case with the polyphenols and the microbiota, um, which produces effects on like the antioxidants, which are important to a athlete, the glucose and lipid homeostasis, which could potentially help modulate um, the muscle inflammation and improve their recovery. You know, after their sport performance,
1: most definitely. And and the second stage of this gut ecology. Section is once you get the signals working properly there, those signals now transfer out to the rest of the body. So we we call this program gut ecology and metabolic modulation. So the second phase is the metabolic modulation. So yes, you do get glucose metabolism working as it should. Uh, this is the way we target um, type 2 diabetes and metabolic mm. syndrome and obesity and um, and even cardiovascular disease. It's starting at this gut ecology yeah, level yeah. and the signals just spin out. You mentioned polyphenols. I but, knew
0: you were going to, because I know you love oh, them. I love <laughs>
1: polyphenols, yeah. Because a lot of what's in um, plant food, these brightly coloured molecules, yeah. uh, they're largely polyphenols. And polyphenols, um, well, for example, the Mediterranean diet is made up of heaps of polyphenols. Yeah. But these big, bulky molecules are too large to actually get absorbed out of the gut through these epithelial cells and into the bloodstream. But what they do, they have a direct antioxidant effect in the gut. So if you've just eaten, say, an overly barbecued steak with all Mm. those black carcinogens on the surface, direct-acting antioxidants such as you get from the polyphenols, will um, neutralise the carcinogenic effect, the pro-oxidant effect of that blackened part of the meat while it's in the gut.
0: So you're saying marination or eating together? Yeah, this is
1: the perfect time to marinate meat. Or the other way you can do it is if you're Mediterranean, you're probably going to have a glass of red wine with your meal. Yeah. (laughs) And if you're Asian, you may well have green tea with your meal. Mm. But in either case, you're putting polyphenols into your system that neutralise those carcinogens right there and then. So then what happens after you've done that, whatever polyphenols are still remaining, the gut microbiota use them as food. So they chop these big bulky molecules up into smaller pieces. They use them for, for their own food. The small pieces left behind are what we call metabolites. And those metabolites are small enough to get absorbed into the bloodstream. So this is where we get the cellular benefit from polyphenols that otherwise won't squeeze through the cells. But um, it's a popular misconception to think that um, polyphenols get into the cells and they act as antioxidants. They don't. They're, They're doing other things. Um, The most powerful antioxidants, in fact, are the enzymes which we make ourselves.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: And that gets back to the nutrigenomic story because if you can activate the genes which produce their own antioxidant enzymes, you're going to be churning out extremely powerful antioxidant enzymes when nature wants them. So, is so there I a think,
0: sorry? Go on. Is there a preference for yeah. polyphenols prior to eating something like a steak or after ingestion?
1: Is there a what for that? Uh, a sorry? preference
0: um, prior to or after ingestion?
1: Uh, during it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, between meals is is going to waste them to a large mm. extent because mm. you won't have any need to neutralise any toxins in the gut itself, but. Just before or during the meal is the ideal time or as you mentioned before, if you've marinated the meat part of the meal, then you're already working on that food there. So um, lots of good reasons to marinate food. And now when we
0: talk about um, gene expression too, obviously there's foods that switch off particular genes as well.
1: Yes, that's right. So um, we've got, two main switches inside our cells. So when I say switches, what I mean is there's a food molecule that'll activate that switch and turn it on, and there's other food molecules that'll turn the switch off. So the two switches are, there's one called NRF2, which (laughs) activates several hundred protective genes. So if you activate that switch and those genes, you're actually switching on Mm -hmm. whole bank of protective genes at the same time but there's enough so that's likely you're going to be eating healthy food to do that um if you eat garbage sorry what type of foods
0: what type of foods would you be talking about as well because a lot of our audience might not know what type of food switch on the nrf2
1: okay so the most potent Um, natural food molecule to do that is a molecule called sulforaphane, which (laughs) comes from broccoli sprouts. Um, However, even if you don't eat any of that, if you're eating a diet with at least 600 grams daily of non-starchy vegetables in your diet, you are getting enough different phytochemicals out of these 10,000 we mentioned before that you will, in an additive sense, be able to upregulate your NRF2. So, there's two ways we can do that. Sulforaphane is convenient from a clinician's point of view, and as you probably know, a lot of my um, PhD research was done on sulforaphane.
0: Yeah, I keep talking uh, about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, as a way of upregulating these defensive processes within human cells. And out of a whole range of re- research, not all of which is mine, we have a fair idea how much of this sulforaphane daily a person needs to get a significant clinical response in a number of different conditions. So that's pretty useful information. The other thing that's interesting there is this same sulforaphane molecule actually down-regulates the NF kappa B, so mm. that's the other mm. switch and that switch switches on Mm. inflammation within the cells. So there's this constant battle within (laughs) our cells between activating the protective genes and not activating the pro-inflammatory genes. And most chronic disease has got a a high degree of inflammation. It does. does. So eating poor quality food, you know, over-processed, nutrient-deficient, low nutrient plant foods um if a person's doing that they probably have a dominant nf kappa b that's the Mm pro-inflammatory switch and they're likely to be overproducing inflammatory molecules within the cells which leads to disease states yeah yeah over time it's just causing gradual breakdown of our cells and tissues so um you know Back when I started practice and I was using food because we didn't have many supplements, we didn't know any of this chemistry. Right. Um, right. NRF2 was discovered in, and named in 1994, so uh, that was 10 years before the term nutrigenomics was coined. So, you know, all this has happened within the last 20 years and, and often it takes a long time for that science to catch up, but once you realise what you can do, it's just extraordinary.
0: So, I mean, some of those foods we're talking about too are garlic <laughs> and onion and broccoli, sprouts, cabbage, kale, the collard greens, a cauliflower, bok choy, um, even grapes and cranberries, blueberries, I think, um, uh, chocolate even, I think.
1: Yeah, like I well, cocoa. <laughs> <is laughs> yeah. Cocoa, <rich> <laughs> very rich in polyphenol, very rich. Most people are quite happy to have it, but they have to be careful because... Some of it's really highly sweetened, but yeah. the darker chocolate is ideal without a lot of sugar in it. Um, but And, you know, you can use cocoa in, in cooking and, and all sorts of different things. A lot of it's to do with colour. Now, we know cocoa is not brightly coloured, but you mentioned blueberries and cranberries before. So the berries are a very, very rich source of polyphenols, those bright reds and purples. Um, Brilliant source of polyphenols You also mentioned the cruciferous vegetables So that's the cabbage and broccoli and cauliflower and all of those And then you mentioned the onion and garlic family The trap with the onion, garlic Mm. family and the The cabbage, broccoli family is When you cook them, you actually destroy an important enzyme That's Mm. necessary for their activity so, I mean, mostly with garlic, we do cork and onion. So, we're losing a lot of that value in the cooking process. Um, and so, too, with the broccoli. Um, when you boil your broccoli vegetable, mm. you're killing that enzyme. Oh, yeah. And so, you're really losing uh, the actual benefit of it. The reason we use the broccoli sprouts in what we do is you have about 50 to 100 times more of the sulforaphane yield from the sprouts than what you get from the vegetables. And the reason for that is the molecules are actually concentrated in this tiny little brown sprout, broccoli seed. Yeah, And as it grows, the, basically those molecules just get diluted. So by the time, you know, the size of the, the broccoli is, you know... Size of an ordinary broccoli head, you've diluted the activity up to a large extent. Yeah. That that said, you're more likely to eat large pieces of broccoli vegetable more frequently than you're going to eat broccoli sprouts anyway. So, I mean, it's really all about balance. So should we it's all be about variety?
0: Should we all be growing broccoli sprouts on our kitchen benches?
1: Well would you keep it up for a length of time? Mm. That's, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people do, uh, but there's a there's a real issue with it. So, um, as you might know, we manufacture a broccoli sprout yeah. supplement and we have a measured amount of sulforaphane that comes from that. But to do that, we need to start out with a seed which is very concentrated in the precursors to sulforaphane and the enzyme because when you just go and buy some broccoli seed at the health store or wherever you're going to get it Mm -hmm. from, you have no idea whether it has much of these actives in them or not. And there's actually about a 16-fold variation between the lowest quantity in, in some seeds and the highest. So you don't know what you're getting if you want to do this from a therapeutic standpoint. But I don't want to discourage anyone because Um, A fresh sprout of any plant is a very rich source of lots of nutrients and folate is very poorly available Mm. in a diet which has low plant food and that's the best way to get bioavailable folate is out of Mm. plants like that. And even the, the people who are sort of focused or clinicians focused on having activated forms of folate supplements Food already provides all those sources, so you know growing sprouts of any kind, on your kitchen bench is a great way of getting probably the freshest vegetable that you're going to eat. The o- the other trap with them, of course, is in really hot, humid weather like we have in Brisbane. <laughs> um, they will go mouldy very quickly, mm, and mm. Uh, you're going to be very careful. You know, if you're not keeping them, rich. yeah several times a day, it's just a little bit risky. So yeah. not so bad in the winter or in Victoria, probably any time of the year.
0: So you did mention that you do have, do you have tablet or powder form?
1: So we grow, so we do this, we produce this product. <clears throat> so we grow the sprouts um, in a certain way to optimise the sulfurophane. We dry them, we mill them to a Powder. powder. Mm -hmm. and we produce the product from that powder. Now, we would classify that as a functional food powder Mm -hmm. because it's a measured quantity of the actives. It has a specific function as distinct from just having the vitamins and minerals that you would otherwise get. We then take that powder in another step and we produce capsules from that. So those capsules, you know, then... a measured dose again so clinicians who mostly purchase this will recommend those measured doses Mm. of those capsules to their patients knowing that there's an expected dose that has an expected clinical effect but for people who are otherwise healthy and you know don't have any particular clinical issue they're trying to deal with they might decide they just want to take a teaspoon of the powder every day and sprinkle it wherever they want to sprinkle it in food or put it in water and drink it.
0: So just so, as a comparison, what mm, is a capsule um, compared to a broccoli head? How much broccoli heads would be in the Well, capsule? look, I get
1: asked that a lot <laughs> and it's nearly impossible to say because <laughs> if you don't know what the grade of the seed was that grew the vegetable. You can't know, but, I mean, we we have been known to say things like uh, a couple of capsules a day is like having a kilo of the vegetable oh a day. Yeah, yeah. But, but I have to yeah. say that with hesitation because you can't really measure it because you yeah. don't know about the broccoli. No. Um, sadly enough, the commercial broccoli that we grow mm. in Australia mm. is not as rich in sulforaphane yield as we would like. And the reason I know that is when um, I was working in the lab, we just bought some fresh broccoli from somewhere locally in Brisbane and analysed it. And the amount of sulforaphane yield in this beautiful fresh head of broccoli was pretty low. So, um, mm. pretty disappointing. Well, you think even if I ate the whole head of broccoli, I'm not really, really? getting a lot. Wow. Is that because of
0: nutrient deficiencies in the soil like zinc and magnesium? No, or no, it's precursors, not.
1: precursors, no? No, the reason that it's like that is um, heirloom broccoli that a, a farmer might have grown, I don't know, 50 oh, years yeah. ago or so. When he harvests it and takes it to market, it'll bruise very quickly and it only will last oh, several several yeah. days. So what they've done over the years, they've bred varieties that will last. And I'm sure you can go to any sure, supermarket yeah. in Australia and you can find a fresh-looking head of broccoli that's firm, it's not bruised, it's not sweating and, and rotting on the side. Um, and that's just been done by breeding. And I suspect that in the process of breeding it to have those properties, they've lost a lot of the therapeutic properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you buy heirloom seeds and you're going to grow your own, I think is probably yeah. the answer to that. Yeah. Because I do know when you grow broccoli as a vegetable, it, it won't last anywhere near as well as it will last just in whatever the supermarket variety is.
0: Yeah. Now, look, that becomes a functional food too, doesn't it? And so how does it offer health benefits beyond its nutritional value?
1: So the other thing that um, we've learnt with foods like broccoli, so I mentioned before, if you cook it, you'll kill an enzyme. There's an enzyme in all of these cruciferous vegetables called morosinase, and if morosinase gets destroyed, you can't actually produce the sulforaphane, so you don't cook it. However, there's a rider on that. Certain species of Mm. gut microbiota have morosinase-like activity and they will convert some of those precursors to sulforaphane. So that presupposes that you've got a very healthy microbiome. We don't know exactly what species of microbes have the most uh, activity, although some of the bifidobacteria appear to be able to do that. The downside is that using your own microbiota to do that conversion, you're only going to get about 8 to 10% of the sulforaphane yield that you get if you have an intact, raw source. Right. So what I say to people, um, I don't discourage people from eating broccoli, vegetable, not at all.
0: No.
1: Um, You know, you've got lots of other beneficial properties. But try to eat it raw and if you... If you're making a salad, crumble it up into little pieces and sprinkle it through the salad, really little pieces. Uh, You don't even know it's there if people don't want to, you know, chomp their way through little broccoli trees. (laughs) gorgeous. Uh, You can just sprinkle it through that way. Or if you were making something like um, a curry and you might have otherwise Mm. cooked some broccoli in it, don't waste it by cooking it. But, again, break it up into these tiny little florets and sprinkle it onto the top of your curry at the last minute, stir it through so it's warm, and serve it that way. And you're going to protect most of the benefit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, can you chat about your GEM protocol, you know, that, that enhances a gut ecology and uh, yes. immune modulation?
1: Yes, I would love to um, because... Um, sulforaphane turns out to be one of the major keys to why this approach works. So what, what GME is, gut ecology and metabolic modulation, it's based on several different sciences. So it's based on cell biology and that's telling us what those gut lining cells, the gut epithelial cells are doing. It's based on microbiology, so that's about the microbiota. It's based on immunology, and that's the immune cells that live directly beneath the gut lining. Which is so important today.
0: On... <laughs> What's that? So, Which is so important with viruses we have floating around today.
1: Yes, exactly, that one in particular.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that non-mentionable uh, and one.
1: We, <laughs> and then we use nutrigenomics kind of to, to wrap all these sciences up together. So... Um, We've made it, we've simplified it We say the science is complex But the implementation is simple And the interesting thing about the gut epithelial cells Is they're quite unique Because they have a lot of specialised functions That other cells don't For example, they have basically their own antibiotic molecules They're Mm. actually antimicrobial But we call them antibiotic for the purpose And the good thing about that is they can detect the bad guys in the gut. They can leave the good guys alone. So we've got a mixture in the gut of friendly commensal bacteria and then we've got these pathogens, which are the bad guys. Yeah,
0: because in external antibiotics, the pharmaceutical one will wipe up both good and bad. They just wipe out a
1: lot. And unfortunately, even things like... Um, wormwood and oregano oil and and molecules like that which are quote-unquote natural plant molecules they're also destructive to the friendly bacteria so what mother nature has done is has these little antennae if you like that are embedded in these gut epithelial cells and they sweeping around inside the the microbiota and going, oh, right, there's some pathogens over there. So that little antenna now sends signals into the epithelial cells and then they start to produce their own antimicrobial compounds and they will destroy these pathogens so they don't get out of control. I mean, you can't help. Getting pathogens in your gut because you're eating them. It's it amazing. Peaches yeah. that you ate.
0: So it's like testing so, the area and seeing what is required to do its job, and then it'll send out those appropriate chemicals.
1: <laughs> exactly. Gosh, so so that's this amazing. Is, this, is, this, is this is one cell. Of, yeah. yeah, This is about these signalling molecules which are there. Um, the other thing that's really interesting with the gut is these gut lining cells have little molecules called toll-like receptors sitting on their surface so you've probably heard of toll-like receptors there's one in particular called toll-like receptor Mm. 2 or tlr2 Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit like well this receptor it's just sitting there it's um like the key in the door i guess it's just waiting for the right key in the lock so it can be activated so if you think of um, a food yogurt, yogurt is rich in lactobacillus bacteria, and those little lactobacillus molecules have on their surface specific molecules which attach to that attach to that toll-like receptor too. Mm. So you might have got that that molecule from eating yogurt or you might have it because lactobacillus is a natural inhabitant of a healthy gut. So what toll like receptor two does then once it's been um, it's got this molecule attached to it that sends signals down mm. through the epithelium into the immune system below and through some pretty complex pathways it does the following in all simultaneously it switches on uh, pathways which um, control infection.
0: Which, sorry, it's which?
1: Control infection. Wow. Okay. So it has these anti infective properties. So it's then going to produce natural killer cells and other molecules. And B cells,
0: exactly what we need today. These yeah. are
1: exactly what yeah. we need. Uh, at the same time, it's doing that, it's tending to switch off the tendency to allergy. It's also going to switch off inflammation. Hmm, perfect. And cytokine another storm. Step Sorry, I'm two. just thinking
0: cytokine storm, which is going on.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, and we could do a whole story. Yeah, we could on just that. on that. <laughs> um, and then we reduce the tendency to autoimmunity. So when we talk wow. about getting the gut immune network in balance, This is what we want to do. We want to deal with infections, and we want to shut down allergy and inflammation or I should say excessive inflammation. We do need inflammation initially as part of killing the bugs. You mentioned cytokine storm. So that's an inflammatory reaction that gets switched on and then it won't switch off when it's supposed to. Again, there's lots of little checks and balances going on within the immune system and the, and the healthy immune system will realise when it's done its job and then it shuts that process down and stops. The, in the cytokine storm, it doesn't stop.
2: No, it remains what,
1: yeah. there and these people get this chronic inflammatory state and this long COVID syndrome yeah. has a lot to do with this cytokine storm that won't shut down. Yeah. Part of the shutting down process uh, comes from, and this is another story and I won't go into all the detail now, but if your diet includes prebiotics, which is basically food for the bacteria in the gut, those prebiotics actually activate anti-inflammatory cytokines. So there's one called interleukin-10 and when it's produced, it is, very powerfully capable of shutting down excessive inflammation. So it's like having you know somewhere within the cells it's like having or the cell does one foot on on the accelerator, the other one ready to touch the brake and its accelerator. I'm just going to mention prebiotics because a
0: lot of people don't probably know what they are. um, Oh,
1: right. As opposed to probiotic,
0: yeah, as opposed to... So
1: prebiotic food uh, can be starchy foods, so um, green bananas that can be cold potatoes as in um, potato salad. Um, It can be in rice, the starch that's in rice. Um, Dandelion greens,
0: chicory root. Sorry, I just love these. That's why the the, uh, leeks and asparagus and bananas, yeah.
1: Yeah, so this is prebiotics, so we need to make sure that's not confused. As opposed to The yogurt bacteria I mentioned before there, the probiotics, we're talking about the prebiotics. And the other prebiotic family that we've already talked about Mm. are the polyphenols.
0: Yeah, again.
1: So the polyphenols are good... Um, bug food, which are feeding the microbiota, but and at the same time, we're feeding the microbiota, they're breaking uh, down those polyphenols and the potato starch and whatever else into other molecules yeah. which send anti inflammatory signals into our own immune system. It's, it, you see how complicated it is, and that's why I say. We have to be careful we're not trying to micromanage mother nature and we you know, we want to dump a bottle of vitamin C into the system. Why? What is that going to do? It isn't it isn't gonna do any of the things we've been talking about, none of them. And and really with vitamin C it's not hard to get it out of the diet. You can only absorb about four or five hundred milligrams a day anyhow. So it doesn't take too much to get that out of a few serves of fruit and vegetables. So you can see I'm, I'm no longer a proponent of vitamin C. I mm. used to be.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, again, it's one of these megadose molecules that there's no model in nature where this happens. And if nature's not doing it, I reckon I don't want to do it either.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um just functional foods as well. Have you got something to say about functional foods or some of your favourite functional foods?
1: Pomegranate. Yeah. <coughs> Pomegranate's a good functional Love, food. Yeah. yeah. Um, the thing about functional foods is they're usually very healthy foods for which there's been some research to measure the quantity of the active molecule. Now, ginger's another one. Oh. So ginger has very potent functional food properties because it has specific effects that we can measure with certain doses. Um, So as distinct from, say, lettuce, I can't tell you much about lettuce, really. (laughs) I I can tell you cos lettuce is a rich source of um, folate in the bioavailable form. But it's not so much the signalling that I've been talking about before. I'm I'm sort of more looking at a functional food which has a specific molecule which has a signalling effect. So those sorts of things. We also talk about nutraceuticals, and there's a very fine line between functional foods and nutraceuticals. Yeah, there is. Largely, if you put the functional food in a capsule... It becomes a nutraceutical, so it's a little bit yeah. of a grey area yeah. there, and it doesn't matter terribly much because we are simply trying to uh, look at foods which have these better than average properties for enhancing cell function. So, what and,
0: if, and, go on? No, sorry, I was going to say, what are some of your favourite foods then that that you know obviously um, fight off chronic diseases and uh, promote healthy ageing?
1: Uh, I mean, I'm not going to answer that question for you <laughs> because no, because the more diverse the array of plant foods you put in your diet, the better um, your cell function is going to be. So we can talk about molecules like the sulforaphane yep. from the cruciferous vegetables and mm-hmm. things from garlic and ginger and so on. And they have specific properties. But they wouldn't do me much good if that's all I ate. So th- that's why this concept of superfood to me—that apart from now—that term never leaves my lips because it's so totally meaningless.
2: Mm.
1: You know, it's like the celery juice craze. I mean, <laughs> I don't care what celery juice does. I don't. That's not how cells work. They—they they need a variety. And Mother Nature's actually made it pretty easy for us because we don't really need to know much science to eat a, a, a health-promoting diet. Um, the, the study that I do like that talks about the 600 grams of non-starchy vegetables daily was done in Germany in 2010. And mm. what they did was they took three groups of people and they gave them different quantities of plant food so the highest level was 600 grams of non-starchy vegetables and Ah. then I think it was 400 and 200 or something Um, and then they got these people to eat these foods for a period of time and then they did blood tests before and after, and they measured all these markers of disease. A lot of them were markers of inflammation. Um, You would relate to things like interleukin-6 and CRP and and molecules of that kind. And without a doubt, the ones on the 600 grams of non-starchy plant food daily had remarkable improvement in their markers of inflammation.
0: You're talking about non-starchy foods. Can you mention what they are?
1: Uh, yes. For example, leafy, for example, leafy green yeah. vegetables, capsicum, cucumber, mm. zucchini, um, all of the the leafy herbs. I, I look at herbs as plant foods as yeah. well, not yeah. just uh, a sprinkle on the top, no. generous amounts. And um, you know, anything that oh, I've actually got a list right here. <laughs> <laughs> really awesome. you should have one on your list. wall. <laughs> Yeah, well, I actually was working with us this morning. Yeah. So um, what have we got on here? We've got green beans, baby spinach, yeah. basil, um, cabbage, coriander, watercress, silverbeet, parsley, mung sprouts, mint, lettuce, radishes, marrow, pumpkin, celery, asparagus, shallots, capsicum, mushrooms. And so on and so forth, Some
0: fantastic foods, yeah, some fantastic foods that obviously have some great constituents.
1: um. I mean, if you have a good salad every day, you're going to get those. I mean, that's basically where we put a lot of those foods in in a salad. Uh, And some people don't want to have a salad. They might have a juice. Um, Lots of, of good wholesome plant foods can go into a juice. But um, the interesting thing with this study in Germany with the 600 grams a day that was remarkable in relation to the people who say there's nothing left in our food, in that um, research group, all they did is they went down to the supermarket and they just bought whatever produce was there. Oh, wow. Okay. wasn't organic, right. wasn't grown through permaculture or anything. It's just whatever was available in the shop that day. Uh, and, and they still I had mean, good I've results,
0: yeah, and they still had good yeah, results because, I mean, we all know that, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've uh, demonstrated that over and again clinically that you can do that with enough plant food. I mean, maybe 100 years ago you only needed 400 grams a day to get the same effect. I don't know, we never measured that sort of thing then, but it is achievable with food. It most definitely is.
0: Fantastic, And that?
1: this is a core principle of the GEM protocol that... We get our basic vitamins and minerals and so on out of the food and then we look at nutrigenomically active other molecules to get the signaling effects that are actually treating the disease, getting the gut epithelium working, the immune system. Um, And once we get that level under control and balance to the gut immune network then we're doing other things that spin out to the other organs depending on whether the patient's got arthritis or asthma or cardiovascular disease or or whatever else. Because whatever you do to one cell in the body, you're actually doing it to all of them. Mm. So you don't have to have special tricks for treating the kidney or treating the lung. You're treating the core processes of every cell of the body if you do it properly.
0: It's just an amazing world down there, isn't it? All of its own. (laughs) It's just an amazing world.
1: Yes, it is. And sadly, I didn't know any of this when I was in clinical practice. I've learnt it all. Well, you know very
0: much now. You're you're a wealth of knowledge. You're a library now. And so we've actually come to the end of the hour. I'm so sorry. It's gone so quickly. But if people would like to contact you, um, you've got a GEM protocol book out. You've written a few books also that are available I've written,
1: a, I've written a book recently, published in the third edition, called Switched On, which um, you can buy through our company, Cell Logic, in Brisbane. The hardcover version, Amazon have it as an ebook.
0: Ebook, yep, Kindle,
1: yep. Um, Anyone wants to contact us? Um, Where can they cell find Logic? you? Yeah. dot com dot a u will find us in Brisbane.
0: And you're on Facebook too, so you, you offer a wealth of knowledge just on your Facebook page too. Oh, yes, too.
1: on Facebook, <laughs> yeah. Under Christine uh, We Norton. don't talk yeah. much about the GEM protocol on Facebook because it really needs a clinician's support yeah. to um, take a patient through it properly.
0: Yeah. You've been fantastic. Thank you, Christine, for coming on to our show. You've been a wealth of knowledge. Really appreciate you coming here and stimulating our minds. <laughs>
1: been a
0: pleasure, Katarina, you're yeah. talking about my favourite subject. Yeah, thank you so <laughs> much. Okay. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. Bye thank now. you, Christine.
0: Bye bye. And that's eighty seven point six FM, the wellness couch with Kat and Brett uh, Morrison. And we'll be back next week. See you later. Have a great night. Bye bye.
2: But there's only a handful of human beings. And at night when I look at the stars, I think of my elders.